Hello, friends. This episode of the podcast is with Alan Lovewell. Alan is the founder of Real Good Fish. Real Good Fish is a community of fishermen that use sustainable catch methods to do weekly and biweekly deliveries to over 100 neighborhoods in California. So with each delivery, you not only receive the freshest seafood from the California coast, but also the specifics about where, when, how, and who caught your fish. They offer full transparency of where your food is coming from so you know it's fresh and you can put a name to the local fisherman you are supporting by subscribing to this program. I am a member of Real Good Fish, and I'll just give you an example of uh, some of the stuff that they offer. So this morning, I got an email from them that said, uh, hey, Kyle, today we are going to deliver uh, your batch of, they're doing oysters this this week, right? So I'm going to get sweet, briny, melt-in-your-mouth Miyagi oysters from Tomales Bay. And then there's some, some information about the fishermen that caught my, fi- my oysters. Uh, below, there are some recipes, so I can make crispy tempura oysters with apricot puree, grilled or broiled oysters with sriracha lime butter. And I'm going to go pick these up uh, in a couple hours from a cooler from, from the fisherman who lives, um, you know, seven blocks away from me. I'm a huge fan of what these guys are doing, um, and I recommend that you go to Real Good Fish and check them out. Um, I'm going to leave it there, but all is well in my life. I just made it back from L.A. I was down there getting a bunch of podcasts and back up in Santa Cruz now. Already working with a few journalists uh, to come up with good nominees for this year's Motherfucker Awards. Um, it's been fun getting back into it. It's, uh, it's, it's one of the few moments that I can learn about really depressing systemic issues and figure out a way to laugh about it. So I'm, I'm really in, been enjoying that. And if you have uh, nominees for us that, you know, co- companies, individuals, or organizations that are profoundly fucking Mother Earth, uh, you can reach out to me on Instagram or go to the Motherfucker Awards Instagram or reach out at in, uh, info at kyle.surf. That's where you can give me feedback on the podcast, recommendations for new guests, all that stuff. I'm also doing a, uh, a newsletter, if you haven't signed up for that, where I deliver the best articles I've been reading, um, online videos I've been watching, and if you missed any podcasts, I send a list of, of all that stuff too. So no pressure, but um, no spam ever, just only good stuff. Uh, people have been enjoying it. So you can go to my website, kyle.surf, to check that out. Um, also, I've been getting a lot of questions about what podcast equipment I use, um, what travel gear I use when, when I'm on these trips. So I decided to add a section to my website, kyle.surf, where I listed out all of my gear. So my my favorite travel gear that I never leave home without, all the podcast equipment if you ever want to start your own podcast. And I'm an Amazon affiliate, so I put links to all of the products on my website. And if you buy it from the website, I will get a small percentage of that purchase at no cost to you. Uh, book club also have some of my favorite books up there on kyle.surf um what else i'm almost out of the box of goodies the box of goodies are an assortment of goods uh two different books that you can choose between one is a signed copy of sex at dawn by dr chris ryan uh mud water mud water uh these guys support the podcast and you can you can get 
one of these jars delivered to your doorstep with the book and with Santa Cruz Medicinals CBD coconut oil. Um, I use these products pretty much every single day. And if you want to get the box at a greatly discounted price, you can go to my website, kyle.surf, or you can pick the Psychedelic Explorer's Guide option. So this is a signed copy of Jim Fadiman's book, The Psychedelic Explorer's Guide, Mudwater, and Santa Cruz Medicinals. Uh, and if you want any of these products individually, you can go to scmedicinals.com and you can type in the code name Kyle10 to get 10% off all products, all CBD products. So coconut oil, uh, pain cream, um, fucking everything. Just go to scmedicinals.com, Kyle10, take them for everything that they're worth. And if you want a subscription to Mudwater, if you want a good coffee alternative, alternative that doesn't make you jittery, go to mudwtr.com and type in Kyle10, same code name, and get $10 off your subscription to Mudwater, and you can cancel at any time. Showing! And with that, please welcome to the show the very articulate, the very thoughtful, and the very fishy, Mr. Alan Lovewell. Kyle Tierman here. I'm in Cape Town. I was the only journalist in northern Nigeria. Not an adventure until you get lost in Tijuana. You get caught inside by a giant wave, you feel really alone. I love the adventure of waking up and not knowing what will happen and that being my job. I'm standing at a desert oasis right now. A lot of tourists don't see this part of Bali. Smiles and thumbs up. Thumbs up. Here we go, man. So what's uh? So you, you're heading down to Moss uh, most mornings, and then what does a uh, an average day look for you look like for you these days? Um, you know, to be honest, it's it changes quite a bit. You know, it has to do a lot to do with um, what fish is coming in and sort of where we're at in terms of our team. And you know, we spread out in terms of we have drivers going north, we have drivers going south. We've got you know set routes. How uh, many boats are uh, are are in your fleet? Uh, it changes, but we work with a core group of 40 or so fishermen. We've worked with over 150 to, to date. You know, we started in 2012 and, uh, you know, or, you know, at that time there wasn't a whole lot of options for, for fishermen to sell, uh, direct to c- consumers. And so, you know, we sort of filled that niche. Um, since then there've been a few other companies that are, you know, o- occupying that space and that space is growing and it's really sort of, again, um, I think the re-evolution of our uh, of our fishing and fishery supply chain. And are they so, all outside of uh, Moss Landing? Uh, the or core are, group, I mean, most of our guys are working on Moss. It's just more convenient that way. You know, and our relationships are obviously a little bit stronger. We see them day in, day out. Um, you know, we can interact with them more. But, you know, a lot of fishermen are mobile. You know, they're uh, moving up and down the coast with the fish, you know, depending on the seasons. You know, they're during Dungeness crab season, they're you know, here locally for the opener, but then when, you know, the season opens up north, they move their boats up north and they're fishing up there. Uh, salmon as well, you know, they're, they're highly mobile. They're going down to Morro Bay if the fish are down there. They're going up to Fort Bragg if the fish are up there. So what are the, what's the month uh, that Dungeness crab go for? Or what's their season? Well, it's supposed to be from November until June, uh, but this year it got cut short. And, uh, you know, they got sh- cut short this year and this season because of uh, concerns over whale entanglement. And you know, it's a highly controversial topic. 
Um, there's a lawsuit that was filed against the California Department of Fish and Wildlife um, saying that basically that they were uh, neglecting to pay attention to uh, the Protected Species Act and uh, specifically whales. And, um, and so they did an emergency closure, which uh, was pretty, pretty horrible for these f- crab fishermen. They, um, you know, they had two weeks to get all their gear out of the water and, you know, with, you know, the weather that we've been seeing and, you know, just that kind of time crunch, you know, guys are pulling traps in right to the end, you know, not because they're waiting till the very end, but because logistically and for the safety of themselves and their crew, you know, they didn't have a whole lot of days to get all that, those, tra- those crab traps in the boat. And it takes multiple days to get all that gear back. So a, f- uh, a fisherman will go out and they'll drop uh crab traps the crabs will call, uh, crawl inside of them the bottom exactly. of the ocean and then they'll pull them back up yep and a uh, typical trap holds how many crabs um you know you know they can get up to 20 crab in a trap maybe you know you'll hear stories more than that but um on average i would say you guys are doing five ten it depends on the season right. early in the season you're getting loaded traps you know there's just a lot more and the whales were getting entangled in those traps not in the traps in the lines and the ropes mm. on the, that, so when they, they would pull them up and they would get trapped they would get it's caught not not even in the pulling up process just in the whales just swimming around um, they'd find themselves every now and again um, wrapped up in a trap. And, um, you know, the instances of that occurring, uh, you know, were, I wouldn't say significant, but they were measurable for sure, you know, several years ago. I think those instances have gone down. Um, but there's also, you know, the issue of just there's a lot more, um, I would say, like traffic and eyes on, on the water here in the Monterey Bay. You know, there's a really flourishing ecotourism component, whale watching, uh, recreational boating. So there's a lot of attention and a lot of awareness here on the bay, which is great. But I think it, it, it sort of, um, unfortunately, uh, presents a, a view that's of the bay that's not representative of the whole coast. You know, sort of like if, you know, you're going to see a lot more things or you're going to measure a lot more things if, if you're measuring that thing as opposed to... Um, taking a broader approach and looking sort of at the, at the overall, uh, impact and, you know, sure. so I think part of it is, you know, there was an immediate knee jerk reaction that, that occurred. I think I'm really interested to see what the, uh, you know, how they come to, uh, agreement and, and in terms of understanding that, you know, this fishery is an important fishery and, and a lot of people rely on it for their livelihood. So by cutting the season short, you're cutting their paychecks potentially in half or something, you know, and, uh, so did they just come down hard on it? Like, was there instances of whales getting caught, like photos were taken and then it, it, uh, was immediately shut down or it was, there was a process, you know, is, you know, there's sets for lawsuit and then the lawsuit actually got fired, filed. Um, you know, I think part of it too, it's, it's important to recognize is that our whale populations are, are healthy. They're recovering, they're growing, you know? And so it's, it, it's indicative of there being a lot of whales in the water. And I think it's important for us to recognize that, you know, that's, that's a conservation success story. Um, that is a resource management, you know, success story that we all need to celebrate and really need to like, you know, uh, be proud of the fact that we can go out on the bay on a boat or we can stand on the shore and we and can see, watch a lot of and whales. see these whales. And, you know, it didn't used to be that way. And, and obviously if you're going to have a lot more whales out there, you're going to have a lot more, uh, instances, instances. Of, of interaction. And I think, 
yeah, we want those interactions to, to, to reproduce. But yeah. at the same time, you're getting more whales out there. So I think we have to think about, you know, what are those innovations? What are those strategies? Um, maybe it's area closures. Maybe it's different, um, you know, uh, closures in certain areas based on densities of whales. I mean, I think we, what we need to be moving towards is a more dynamic management strategy where, you know, we're not just closing the thing down. We're saying, hey, look, all the whales are here right now. Let's close this area down. You guys can fish other areas, um, but right now this is a hot spot, you know. And and or you know another strategy, um, you know, being you know, that that uh, you know the whales are migrating, and, and so let's let's follow them, um, right? And and let's close areas around them. Or um, yeah, there's some you know talk about different gear innovations, right? There's just you know discussions about submerged lines and buoys that are actually attached to the traps, and then uh, there's. Uh, some sort of signal, radio signal that goes down to the trap and releases the buoy in the line, right from the bottom of the ocean. And I think you know, theoretically, that sounds amazing. And the reality, though, is, um, you know, what if those sy- systems jam up? What if they run out of battery? What if, um, you know, these these traps move underwater? You right. know, they're not when you throw it on the bottom. It's not just staying there. There's currents. There's all kinds of forces that are moving those things around. So. You know, I think there's some interesting ideas and, and opportunities for exploring how we innovate in the fishery. But you know, I hope that we're moving towards finding you know a mutually agreed upon solution yeah. that allows both you know fishermen to coexist with. Yeah, there has to be man for for us to come to better solutions. We need to talk to each other, not as enemies, but as um, all you know, stewards of the environment and people who use this amazing resource, which is the Monterey Bay. Right. And I think that, um, you know, you see this argument or these kinds of contentious issues play out a lot between hunters and quote unquote environmentalists. The hunters will call themselves environmentalists. They'll say, hey, we know way more about these species populations than you do. And just because you don't like the idea of a dead deer or something like that doesn't mean that these animals aren't overpopulated and need to be taken care of. um, And and the populations need to be looked at and regulated through a sober lens. and I could see whales also becoming a contentious issue because they're such an anthropomorphized animal. Absolutely. People love them. You know, there's been Pixar movies made about them. So it's interesting also to look at how we, um, yeah, how, how ecotourism, which I many times argue is kind of the, the solution to conservation because you're sure. getting people uh, in these areas and 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 they're paying money to, to see this animal and it's adding more value to it but then you um, it's like, it's almost like you never solve the problem you just come up with new problems like yeah. the problem used to be that whales <laughs> were gonna go fucking extinct and we had to deal with something whereas now right. it's like okay they're back but now how do we still let the dungeness crab fishermen do their thing um, you know and come to some agreement so uh so was that just this last year that the fishing season got cut short? Yeah, no, this just happened um in April. And uh you know, previous years it, the Dungeons Crab fishery had either been shut down early or um you know, uh in different areas, but right. basically, you know, that was they were shut down for in these previous years for concerns over demoic acid, which is, right. you know, that concern was, um, raised again with changing environment that, you know, in one hand we're talking about the whales and, you know, the, the uh, resurgence and, 
success of, of our conservation efforts. But with the demoic acid, that's another sort of environmental change associated with climate change and with ocean warming uh, that, you know, our oceans are arguably the most dynamic places on Earth. And, uh, and I think we want to and we should be thinking about how we work with the environment, how we adapt to it, how we um, understand it better and, you know, align ourselves in the path and the ways in which the ocean is changing as opposed to fight it. You know, if, right. if we're going to fight it, we're not going to win. And so I think it's our responsibility as a society to work with it, to understand it and, and to think about how we respect it, um, you know, inherently for what it is and, and the beauty and the majesty that it that it is and the life that it provides for the planet, but also, you know, the, the food source, the livelihoods, the, um, you know, all the, uh, uh, ecosystem services, you know, that it provides for us. And, and I think, um, if we're doing our job right, right, if we are effectively managing the resource, if we're effectively, um, living alongside it and a part of it, um, we should be able to have our cake and eat it too. And that's the beauty of, you know, a healthy ecosystem is that it's designed to support life. It's designed to support um, diversity. It's designed to um, be resilient and adaptive. And, and I think if we can tie ourselves as closely to the natural, uh, you know, uh, the natural state and the natural, uh, you know, opportunity there with, with the ecosystem that we're going to be right. most healthy and most successful as, as humans. You know, never mind the ocean, it's just in the environment in general. If we can tie ourselves and understand more closely how we align with it, not pave over it, plow it, you know. Um, and that seems to be your philosophy with, with real good fish from the get-go. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think, you know, you're talking about ecotourism and the ways in which, you know, people can, you know, gain that visceral experience on the water that provides that lifelong potentially lifelong respect and appreciation for the whales and the ocean and, and, and what it provides. I think similarly with real good fish, uh, we want to be able to provide that experience at our plate level, right? We understand that, you know, a handful of people, lucky people will make the time and spend the money to get on a whale watching boat and stomach potentially the, the rough seas to, to, to enjoy those types of experiences. But for the vast majority of the population, they'll never get to be on the water and uh, they'll never get to experience those things firsthand. But I do think that if we can build um, a company that you know provides seafood on people's plates and provides those stories and those experiences and those connections, we can reach a lot more people. And I think we can do so in a really meaningful way uh, that potentially bridges you know a lifelong uh, pursuit of understanding and appreciating the ocean beyond um, you know, a piece of protein on our plate or a, uh, romanticized image of the ocean or, uh, or some stories, you know, again, that provide, um, potential knee jerk reactions like we're experiencing here, like with the crab fishery that right. is out of context, unless you understand that, oh, I just ate a meal of Dungeness crab last night. What does that mean? Right. If I'm participating in this fishery and this fishery is feeding my family and feeding me, providing livelihoods for fishermen that I know are my neighbors, uh, the conversation deepens, you know, the repercussions become, um, more, uh, more important. You know, it's, it's not just, oh yeah, we're, we're, we're entangling whales and we need to shut this down. This is bad. 
And if, if you're if you are actually tied to the resource, if you're actually tied to the ecosystem, you understand that um, that those decisions aren't that simple. And I think they that's never okay. are. They, they never, never are, are, man. I yeah. was out uh, in Louisiana a couple years ago uh, doing a story on. Um, on the uh, shrimp fishermen out there that had been affected by the BP oil spill. Oh, yeah. And a lot of these shrimp fishermen also part-time will work on oil rigs. Uh, it's all uh, down in this area in Louisiana called Grand Isle. It's it's the largest uh, oil port and uh, in the state, and then right next to it is one of the largest shrimp fishermen areas, right? Wow. And uh, a lot of these guys are saying, you know, it's a horrible what happened during the BP oil spill, but right after that, um, I don't know if you remember, but Obama put a moratorium on um, oil drilling in Louisiana. Right. So that, that shut down our whole business because then we couldn't, we couldn't fish for shrimp and we couldn't drill for oil. Right. And the amount of people that you know, lost their homes, had no way of supporting themselves after that was just astonishing. So they said, like, yeah, we don't want, of course, we don't want um, oil spills to happen, but that was... Um, you know, a solution that was a that, that, that used a, a huge hammer when it should have should have been used a scalpel or something. Right, right, absolutely. Um, but that was a that was a tangent. But back on to so like, what would you say? Because you're going to be able to explain this way better than I can um, to someone who asks you what real good fish is. Sure, uh, we are a subscription service for providing fresh, local, sustainable seafood direct to your home. And you know, the nice thing about it is it's convenient. Um, we're providing you, you know, with a diversity of species. We've offered over 35 different species of fish caught here in the California coast. And, uh, you know, species that range from, you know, the salmon, which we're you know, running right now, and uh, to anchovies, to rockfish, to halibut, you name it. You know, we're really all about sort of the seasonality of, of seafood, understanding that um, salmon isn't available, wild salmon isn't available 365 days a year that, you know, the seasons of salmon, um, ebb and flow, the seasons of Dungeness crab ebb and flow. And, um, you know, we're banking and building this business, uh, again, tied to the ecosystem, understanding that we are going to provide you with what's abundant. We're going to provide you with what's in season and we're going to celebrate that, you know, in the similar ways in which some, you know, folks here in California get really excited about say persimmon season or strawberry season. Um, you know, in a grocery store, doesn't really work that way anymore. You can get apples year round. You can get persimmons probably year round if you really wanted to. But you know, from a seasonality standpoint, bringing that excitement back, you know, so that it's not as monotonous, right? You know, you 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 anticipate it. You know, you you can get excited about you know that first piece of salmon that gets on you know gets on your plate uh, at the opening of salmon season, and uh, you know that's the type of excitement that we want to bring and gets people a little bit more. Uh, in tune again with what's happening. So again, with real good fish, you know, we're trying to make it easy, right? You know, we want to make, we understand that not everyone, uh, wants to become an expert in, and fisheries, fisheries management, and not every uh, person who wants to eat seafood wants to become a commercial fisherman. Um, but we do say that, Hey, we're, we want to be able to provide those, those insights, those services, make it a little bit easier, get people, uh, to engage in, you know, as simple as, you know, just getting a subscription, picking up their fish and feeling confident about what they're getting, but also give folks the opportunity to dig a little bit deeper, you know, learn who their fishermen are, um, learn what, you know, harbors are catching what fish, um, you know, and start to, again, open up the doors for potentially a lifelong 
uh, pursuit of, of learning more about where our seafood comes from. And yeah. I think that's what we really want to do here is, is get people excited, get them engaged, and also understand that, uh, you know, this is when managed and, um, and treated correctly, you know, the ocean should be providing us the most sustainable, healthy food on the planet. Right. And I think that's a really important conversation to be having right now, um, you know, in, in this day and age where, you know, you name it, you know, con- you know populations are rising, population man. Rising, people, yeah. keep ha- people keep fucking, they keep having kids and we <laughs> yep. got to figure out a way to feed them. And fish are the, uh, one of the most abundant sources of protein in the world, especially when we manage the, the fisheries correctly. I mean, that, exactly. it is really one of the most inspiring stories about the, the, the rebounding and the resilience of nature is yep. when I look at fisheries. When yep. I look at these marine protected areas where uh, these fish were on the verge of extinction and you just give them a few years and just give them an inch and they'll take a mile. Totally. I mean, it's, it's a very cool um, just example of that potentiality. Um, so salmon are running right now. Absolutely. Where are they yeah. running to? Where do they? Where, what are they running from? <laughs> well, they were running. Uh, so the opening season was really hot. There's running a lot of from fish. their past. Yeah, exactly. They got to face their past. <laughs> and they're running, we... running towards their future. They're running towards the future. And the next generations up the river. Okay. So so these. Um, so right now in the Monterey Bay, the other morning I woke up uh, and went surfing before dawn because I'm better than you. Yeah, uh, that's true. Than, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't been in the water in two weeks. But. Um, no, better than you, like the humanity, because I always feel better when I'm out surf when i wake up before dawn and i then i see people waking up after me I'm like yeah fucking killed it but i never <laughs> feel better than the fishermen because i woke up and there were what seemed like yeah, you're hundreds sleeping i'm sleeping in man i saw, <laughs> saw hundreds of fishermen out in the monterey bay and they all had, all had spotlights oh yeah what were they doing uh so a lot of the guys you know there's uh like i said there's you know most fishermen are, are, are mobile, you know, they're moving up and down the coast. And so a lot of, a lot of the guys are anchored up probably, you know, uh, off of Capitola, you know, it's good, good grounds for anchoring up. Um, but they're, you know, either, uh, you know, getting ready to fish or they're fishing, you know, and they're trolling for salmon and, uh, you know, trolling around at around, you know, three knots or so. So it's pretty slow. It's, you know, not the high speed trolling associated with more, uh, pelagic fish, but, um, you know, those guys are, are at it, you know, three, four in the morning. And, uh, and what do their lines look like? So the way the gear is set up is that you have uh, your outriggers, which are, you know, those are the uh, poles that you see. You know, they're kind of iconic when you look at a fishing boat. You've got these uh, stout, long, uh, either wood or steel poles, aluminum even, uh, that are then pushing the gear out alongside the boat. You've got weights uh, that are dropped on uh on wire cables called your downriggers and, and, uh, your girdies is another name for it. And those weights are going down. And the whole idea behind those weights is to get fishing line with your lures on it that are spaced up on stops on that wire that are then dropping down, uh, potentially to the bottom. And then you're trolling around at that speed and any given line, um, you know, will have, you know, tens of, uh, or dozens of, of lines with hooks, uh, hooks on them, whether it's a spoon or, or another term, another gear is a, a hoochie, like a little rubber squid. Uh, and then, you know, they're trolling lawn along with, uh, you know, tens of, of these, uh, you know, 40, 50 or more of these lines, depending on the size of the boat. 
um, and hoping that, you know, they're going to come through a school of salmon and those salmon are going to bite and then they'll pull that gear up and they'll pull the salmon by hand onto the boat. They'll clean them. Um, hopefully they're, uh, bleeding them and, uh, pressure bleeding them and, you know, they'll put them on ice or in, you know, refrigerated tanks. What's pressure bleeding a salmon? Uh, pressure bleeding means that you're actually, uh, using water to pump, seawater through their veins so you're pushing out all the blood in in the fish and it's really important to do that uh, because it it preserves the longevity of the fish increases its shelf life and just increases the quality of the meat Um, blood is is extreme it's probably the most uh uh i say uh spoils it yeah spoils it fastest yeah exactly you know the 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 blood blood, is blood and heat right yeah yeah so that's that's going to degrade the meat that's going to um, you know, reduce the quality of the fish. So if you can actually, you know, inject seawater through the circulatory system of the fish, you're going to pump out all that blood and you're going to end up with a really clean, you know, fish that's, that's going to have, um, su- superior quality. So a fisherman will do that immediately once they pull up fish salmon. by fish. Yeah. You know, one at a time, you know, and you're talking about, you know, with the opener, you had guys who are, you know, catching 50 to a hundred fish, you know, and every one of those fish has been handled by hand right and with a lot of hopefully with a lot of love and and um and how often are they pulling up the lines so so you you're you're trawling slowly and then you'll run through a school which i'm guessing then they'll the fishermen will feel you know and then they'll start pulling it up or well uh, there's uh there's you know there's springs on the boat uh in that gear that that indicates to you that there's fish on the line so you're going to pull that gear up for maintenance uh, in in regular uh increments uh but you're also going to be paying attention to these springs and if you've seen those springs you know let's say they're those pumping springs you know it just means that there's something at the end of that and then you pull up your gear and so i'm guessing that if you're trawling for salmon that's not the only fish that is going to bite uh to be honest i mean it's it's one of the cleanest fisheries around you know it that these uh these guys are for the most part catching Mostly um, salmon. Mostly salmon. You know, they're uh, mostly king salmon too. I mean, there are some, uh, you know, silvers out there, uh, but you can't keep those. Those are coho salmon. Those have to be released. Um, those populations are, are low. Uh, but the king salmon, that's, you know, that's majority of the fish that's being brought on board. Um, recreationally, I was out in the water salmon fishing a couple weekends ago and uh, there are guys actually catching some yellowtail. I heard actually. that. Yeah, and I saw some photos. I didn't believe it when I was listening to it on the radio. I was like, "This is." There's all kinds of chatter on the radio. You never know what to believe. But there was yellowtail um, running through Monterey Bay. Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah, and then we also had bluefin tuna just a couple of days ago. Um, the ocean is an incredible place. I mean, just the way things change overnight. And uh, I saw some video of a friend who posted, you know, these bluefins schooling up just right outside. And, um, here, Santa Cruz. Just I have a buddy who's a badass spear fisherman, oh, yeah. and yeah, he's committed. And uh, it, it, he heard that bluefin. It was a couple of years ago that that they were running through, and he just had his friend take him way out and drop him <laughs> off, like close to a bait ball. And he's like, "All right, I'm gonna try and catch a fucking bluefin." How do you do? He said he took a shot at one and could and and didn't get it. But sure. I mean, just to be able to be spear fishing for a bluefin tuna outside Santa Cruz, California, is oh, yeah. a, a, not a sentence that many people get to say. Yeah, no, that's that's um, that's a very special event. Yeah, shout out to Mike Golder. On that <laughs> one. Yeah, I mean, it's it's cool for us to be able to witness that and to experience that and hear those stories and just know that. Um, 
you know, that those fish, they've got fins, they move, you know what I mean? We think about fish, you know, like bluefin being in the southern warmer waters, but, you know, if the warmer waters come in our direction, they're going to come here with it. And so it's, it's really cool to, again, just think about how those currents are moving. And um, I was having a great conversation with uh, a guy uh, yesterday or two days ago, and we were just talking about how you know, amazing things are happening on the California coast right now because of all the rain we just got, right? That we're out of the drought now. Um, you know, thankfully we had an epic winter of rainfall and, you know, we obviously, you know, think about how that impacts our water supply, how long we can take a shower, if we can start, uh, you know, watering our lawns again, or, you know, how full our reservoirs are. But, you know, I think what's actually more exciting to think about is how does it impact the environment? How does it impact, you know, our rivers and our waterways? How does it impact our oceans? And I think, um, you know, I don't know the science behind it, but, you know, in the conversation I was having with a friend, which was that, you know, maybe a lot of the stuff that we're seeing out in the ocean right now, some of the, you know, currents and, and changes in water temperature are tied directly to, you know, all that rain that we got, you know, and it, it'd be interesting to, to talk to some researchers who are more in tune with, with that kind of those types of studies, but it's not hard to imagine that with all that fresh water that, you know, you'd end up with, um, a lot of life, right. That you'd end up with a lot of, uh, you know, dinoflagellates and, you know, a lot of food source, so to speak. Because, is that because the rivers are pumping out nutrients, nutrients for yeah. the fish to eat? And yeah. that's why, uh, I mean, that's why shark attacks typically happen close to river mouths is because there's right. a lot of life near those river mouths because exactly. the smaller fish will eat the nutrients that are coming out of the river and then the bigger fish will eat the smaller fish and then the seals will eat the bigger fish and then the sharks will eat the seals. Yeah, absolutely. Correct? Correct. Okay. You got it. Sweet. Yeah. Yes. Nailed it. Yeah. Uh, so is it, is it mostly small, like, uh, small nutrients that are coming out of the rivers that are attracting the, the fish? Is that what's Yeah, it's the freshwater, you know, that that's those seams, you know, the, the interface between freshwater and saltwater that, you know, that, um, that space is, is really sort of really dynamic and, and has all, again, all the ingredients for life. And I would say, you know, is, um, you know, the beginning of, of our, our, of our, um, food system, you right. know, and, and, and the food chain out there. And so, uh, is it mostly algae? Is that what's coming yeah, a lot out of algae? Okay. Well, it's not the algae that's coming out of the rivers, but it's the nutrients that are coming out of that okay. out of the water. And then that, that creates a ripe environment for, you know, for these, um, these small critters to right. thrive. Right? So, so for salmon specifically, are they running up into Northern California to then um, make their run up the rivers, or are they also doing that in rivers around here? What's where are they going to? Yeah, where I are mean, they running to? Yeah, the majority of them are you know are running through the Bay Delta, you know, and all the um, the rivers and, and tributaries that sort of are attached to the San Francisco Bay, at least in this, in this region, you know, obviously there's uh, rivers further north that salmon are running to like the Klamath and, um, but you know, it's, um, there's salmon running up, you know, our local streams. I mean, it's, uh, you got steelhead that are run up the local streams. I mean, you, you go by these little creeks that you don't think amount to much and, uh, you know, in a, in a big rain year, you know, those creeks swell and, and it's enough water flowing through those places for, pretty large fish to be running up those those creeks and um you know again we don't think about it we drive over you know bridges and we you know drive alongside the san lorenzo river and you know we don't think much about um the fact that a lot of ocean fish are, are making their way up there to, to spawn and 
Um, and so there's some great studies that have been done about, you know, the diversity of our waterways and rivers and creeks and streams that um, allow these fish to adapt to changing climates because every creek is different, every river is different, and the conditions that uh, allow these fish to thrive and to reproduce, um, again, are, you know, because of the changing environment, are, are changing drastically. So one place or one river that used to be a great habitat for salmon to spawn may not be this year. So those salmon will not do well, but another creek, you know, 50, hundred miles up the road, um, has, you know, different characteristics. They may actually be better now and allow those populations of salmon to thrive. And it's sort of that resilience, uh, built into the diversity of waterways up and down our coast that allow these fish to, to thrive in a changing environment, which is an argument to say that we, every, we need every one of these waterways. You know, we need to protect, um, you know, the fish's access to not just, you know, the mainline rivers on our coast, but all the little tributaries, all the little creeks, you know, they all have very unique characteristics um, that, again, in a changing environment are critical um, for these species to succeed. Mm. It seems like a big part of your message is a plea to humanity to observe nature more. Like yeah. you talking about observing the seasons of you know, what uh, you know wh- when the Dungeness crab are in season, you know when the rockfish are in season, what these little tributaries do for you. You know, you, you just drive over it. I mean, you, I, I had a, a, a Nicole, wildlife ecologist on this podcast, and they were talking about the. Um, the eagles that fly around Santa Cruz and how rare it is that we look up and that right. there are these major migration patterns that are happening just above us. And right. it's like, it's, uh, this swirl of nature is taking place around us at all times. Mm-hmm. And you just need to start asking a couple questions to pull on that thread. And then all of a sudden it gives way to these really interesting conversations. But without asking those questions, we, uh, oversimplify the solutions we make poor solutions we you know we create policies that don't benefit um most of the stakeholders and i think that that's when destruction can happen i mean similarly we 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 an example of that would be just to build a bunch of condos over a wetland without looking at the impact that you know what that wetland really gives us right absolutely it it creates a a perspective of humility more than anything Mm -hmm. no absolutely i I want people to feel like they're a part of it right i really want people to embrace the idea that you know nature cares for us and um and if we care for it it will return the favor a hundred thousand times more over and you know i think that's where you know i found that food is one of those sacred places um arguably in this culture maybe not as sacred as it should be but um you know food is is a unifying language that we all share that the, the need to eat um ties us all together and some of the most um you know, it's sacred time in our lives and, and is sharing a meal with friends, sharing a meal with family. And, and, you know, we're latching onto that idea. We're latching on this idea that, that meals are, are, are special and they should be special. You know, the fast food culture that we live in today, uh, doesn't do food justice, doesn't do the environment justice, doesn't do our communities justice. I think what we're looking to do is, you know, part of the slow food movement, so to speak, or just this idea that, um, we should really 
appreciate the the food that we eat and pay a little bit more attention to it, um, but not in a way that it's it's irresponsible that you know you have to do this. It's it's for the planet. It's sustainable. But no, it's it's much more gratifying. You know, I live a much richer life because I feel like I'm a little bit more in tune with what's going on out there. And it's, it's not because I feel a sense of responsibility or it's because, you know, our, you know, there's some arguments there that we're maybe we're privileged because this can be a priority in our lives that we're not. Um, but I think, you know, everyone should have that right and that access to, um, you know, to the appreciation of their meals. And, and part of it is the story the the, the paying attention to, to where our food comes from. Yeah. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. And I think that by framing it in a positive light, by framing it around what food gives us, it gives us this sense of community in an increasingly atomized society. It gives us, it enriches our lives in this big way. Um, it gets people more curious about the idea. And I think that um, by trying to shame people into making the right decisions, um, it doesn't do any good. Absolutely. And if you are someone who would rather be, who, you know, you, you pretend to be an environmentalist, but really you just want to be, you just want to make other people wrong so you can be <laughs> right. Unfortunately, that's the way some people think. And it right. just does, it, it just divides people. Right. Um, but by look, I mean, for example, like you know, a lot of people are hard on on hunters because they don't understand the the full scope of conservation that hunters are are providing. But just speaking personally, what what the experience of hunting has done for my life is it's made me more interested in animals. Yep. I used to not really think of myself as like a super curious animal lover. Right. Now I am. Like I used to not really even like dogs, and I've I've found that this is the biggest shift for me. It's crazy. Yeah, yeah, like I, I I've become obsessed with hunting, and now I'll go into a room and I'll become more curious about the dog. Sure. And I think it's just because I've been become more interested in animal behavior. Right. Um, I absolutely see my food as more sacred. I was making sausages out of this uh, pork that uh, that I, I hunted last month, and I blew it on a batch. I oh, put man. too much fat and cheese in, and I almost started crying. Wait, can you go wrong with too much fat and cheese? You can. I, you, it, oh, I because it, it, you well, it uh, <laughs> the the sausage can lose its integrity. Oh, it got just it, it kind of like <laughs> like it falls it, apart. yeah, it falls apart. And uh, we ended up just making them into little uh, meatballs. Okay, but still, I mean, if you if you're putting a lot of fat in, and then you're putting more cheese. In, in addition to the fat, you can you can have too much cowbell in there. I've learned <laughs> I learned the hard way, but I did get well, I got one of those big lem uh, meat processors. Okay, and uh, we made a bunch of sausage oh, out of killer. it. It's it great experience, though, man. And uh, again, I don't think I would have had any of that enrichment in my life had I not um, developed the the pursuit of hunting. And I can see. Um, fishermen who ha who who have that same appreciation and understanding of of the Monterey Bay and how offensive it might seem to have so, you know an ecotourist in uh whale watcher telling you that you're wrong and they're right and and you know the the fisherman says look i i spend like in 360 days a year out here how right. many you spent two watching whales right so let's let's come to a little bit greater of an understanding and and understand that both groups have have valid points and um we should just talk to each other yeah yeah, yeah. no we don't, there's less shaming less da damning i mean we really need to um, 
understand that you know that the solution that we all are looking for, the solutions that we're all seeking um, are going to come by us working together on them, not by us um, polarizing ourselves and, um, you know, in reacting too quickly and, um, you know, not being diligent in, in our understanding of the problems. And I, and I think, uh, I think people want and inherently want to do the right thing. I think there's just a lot of confusing messaging out there. There's a lot of, um, it's a battle for people's attention. It's a battle for people's hearts and their emotions. It's, you know, it's, um, and I think we need to take a step back and just, you know, understand, you know, that we are part of the system. We are part of these solutions. We are part of, um, you know, the well-being and the future of the, of the resource and the livelihoods of these folks right. um, in our communities. So question is, um, is uh, what what forms of fishing are illegal in the Monterey Bay? That's a great question. Um, there isn't any gill netting going on, and okay. I think you know that's there's gill netting, and and I don't know if it's illegal or not here, but you know there's gill netting on the California coast, but that will be ending pretty soon here, and that's again a. Uh, an effort to reduce bycatch, an effort to um, move our fisheries towards more sustainable capture, in particular with those fisheries. Um, it's a swordfish fishery, uh, but you know, looking at other innovative gear types, like um, there's a uh, exempted fishing permit that was issued a couple of years ago for testing what's called uh, deep set buoy gear. And so the concept there is that you've got a buoy on the surface, and then you have a baited hook with one line. Um, that's going down uh, to a depth that's sort of targeted for where the swordfish are hanging out and feeding. And the idea is that, you know, a fisherman will lay out a few of these buoys out there and, um, you know, they'll tend them overnight and, you know, sort of watch those buoys drift along and um, they'll be catching swordfish. And it's proven to be successful. Um, and, you know, so they're, they're hoping to move that forward into potentially, you know, an actual real fishery. Um, but it's through these exempted fishing permits that we can test new innovative ideas and, and, and fisheries. Um, I can speak from experience because we actually uh, just last year were issued an exempted fishing permit through the Fishery Council here in, in NOAA. And, you know, that exempted fishing permit that we filed for is to test uh, not a new gear, but an old gear that would be brought back to life uh, in, you know, current uh, science and, and conservation and technology. And, and the gear is, is called fly line gear. And the concept here is that, like I was describing with the salmon, where you have a weight that goes down that drops below the boat with a cable attached to it. Now off of that, you have one long line that's uh, we're calling a main line. And on that, we have up to 250 hooks with uh, what are called fly uh, flies, uh, not unlike fly fishing. Honestly, it's um, these 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 little hooks with um, feathers. They're not feathers; they're actually onion bags hmm. that are chopped up and then tied onto these hooks. Anyways, you're trolling this uh, main line with 250 of these hooks on it. On the other end, at the tail end of this gear, you have a buoy at the surface and you have a weight at the bottom. And in theory, that line is staying. Uh, taut and it's you know staying in a, at a prescribed depth based on where you think the fish are where you're meeting the fish and in this case we're targeting chili pepper rockfish which is a conservation success story you know similar to what you're discussing about the resilience of our ecosystems you know our groundfish fisheries uh, were uh, pronounced you know a, a federal disaster uh, 
couple decades ago, and uh, it wasn't expected uh, to recover for another several decades into the future. I think they're uh, saying 2030, maybe. But it just turns out that, again, given that inch, given that space and time, um, these fish bounce back incredibly quickly. And so now we have a healthy resource. We have a healthy stock. And, um, you know, our fisheries currently right now are probably, uh, you know, with current fishing effort are really tapping into only 30% of the sustainable yield. And we're not talking about like 30% of the actual population. We're talking about 30% of what potentially we can take out of the ocean that will come back, right? wow. the sustainable yield of it. And so, you know, the concept here with this, this gear was, uh, to, to test it, to see if we can't create an opportunity for, you know, young and, uh, low capitalized fishermen to go out there and access that resource. Uh, because currently the, the only way that you're going to be able to access that resource is in a bigger boat. And we're not saying like large industrial fishing boats, but we're talking about boats that cost a million dollars, right? Not very many people, uh, have the resources, you know, to put in to you know, buy a boat that's a million permit in quota, you know, we're talking about huge capital expenditure to even think about capturing, catching those fish. The cool thing about this fishing gear that we're testing is that this is something that uh, any you know avid recreational or commercial fisherman uh, with a couple grand to spare uh, could actually put this gear together and could go out there and access this resource and bring it to our docks and bring it to our restaurants, bring it to our plates, uh, and do so in a really sustainable manner. And the exciting thing, thing I can report today is is that the first trip actually occurred today. You know, we've been planning for months and months and months. And, uh, you know, the first fisherman called her diarily uh, with his deckhand. I know, you know Calder. Yeah, you know Calder. Yeah, All right, cool. great surfer. Have you got him on the on I haven't. Yet? No, no, uh, no. I'd love to. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I used to do surf contests with Calder and Walter. Oh, he rips. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. Yeah, so he's, you know, he's out there right now, and he's, you know, for the first time he's accessing um these rocks uh these rockfish conservation areas these areas have been closed for decades again in the interest of um recovering these species so what where are these areas that are uh have been closed it's a depth contour um it's a range that's up and down the coast and i can't speak to the depth range specifically because i'm going to botch the numbers but um there's basically a you know window of of depths up and down the coast that you can't fish because that's where most of the rockfish are hanging out. Oh, okay. And so, you know, the cool thing with this exempted fishing permit is uh, we can actually fish in that area again for the first time um, for these particular species. What um, depth do most rockfish hang out in? Is there a, a consistent depth? It changes. You know, there's over 50 different types of rockfish, right? right? So these chili peppers, um, they're also hanging out with another species called Boccaccio. Um, there's yellowtail rockfish. And uh, they're, they, can, they can be uh, on the bottom, but they're mostly hanging out in the mid-column, mid right? So they're actually schooling, and, and um, you know, th these guys are probably fishing, my guess is somewhere around, you know, 200 feet of water. And, um, and so that's usually the depth I free dive at. So yeah. Yeah. It's, perfect. Perfect. it's yeah. pretty good. Yeah. You should it, actually go spearing for them sometime. Yeah, then. I'll, I'll go down to 200 feet, <laughs> a mile, 200 feet. Yeah, yeah. Me and Wim Hof just breathe up, dive down to the bottom of the seas, pluck a, a couple, uh, a couple rockfish off oh, the yeah. bottom there. Yeah. Um, okay. So, so you got this exempted permit with this new fishing gear. What's it called again? Uh, it's called fly line gear, fly line gear. Yep. That'll allow you to catch more fish, mm -hmm. uh, in areas that typically can't be fished right. because you're showing that we can actually fish more of these species than we currently are, right. which could pro provide more opportunity 
uh, for for fishermen to make money and for us to be for the cu- customer to be eating a, a sustainably caught um, species. Absolutely. Okay. Yep. That's the goal. I mean, the goal is to, you know, think about what the future of this, you know, accessing this resource looks like, and we think, um, in the spirit of of the environment and nature, that you know we need a diversity of, of fishing boats, a diversity of um, fishing boat size and and scales. You know, we've got bigger boats, the trawler boats that are, you know, again. Pr- uh, mostly accessing the resource right now, but we like the idea of having, you know, a large fleet of small scale, but you know, smaller boats that are also accessing the resource again because um, this is a, a great opportunity potentially for uh, new fishermen to jump into the into the um, the industry. And you know, I think uh, it's important to recognize that because there, you know, current opportunities for becoming commercial fishermen are pretty slim. I mean, unless you have you know, some, some capital, some resources saved up or, you know, a good, good bank, you know, very few, there's very few ways to access the capital necessary to get the boat and the permits that you can actually make a full-time living at fishing. You know, there are opportunities for you and I, or anyone, um, to jump into commercial fishing and access a little bit of fish here and there that, you know, it's great, you know, uh, weekend sort of warrior type, uh, you know, supplemented income, but there's very little opportunity for, you know, someone to just get into it and make a full-time living at it. And again, I think what we're interested in exploring here is, is the opportunity to create some, um, you know, doors for young fishermen to to make a go at it. So, um, you mentioned earlier that real good fish provides over 30 different types of species. Mm -hmm. And my rudimentary understanding of, um, one of the main, um, problems we've been facing with our fisheries globally is that consumers are only demanding a very small um, amount of these species. There was that the TED talk called Four Fish, right? Who was yeah. that by? Um, so uh, uh, Paul Greenberg. Paul Greenberg, yeah. right? So, so the argument. I, I want you to make the argument, but but my un- rudimentary understanding is that if we as consumers uh, demand a more diverse array of species, that would be good for the system overall. Absolutely. Okay. Yeah, it's kind of like, I'm, I don't know if this is the proper analogy, but this is sort of what's coming to head to my head right now, which is that, you know, on, on uh, imagine trying to cross a, a pond that's frozen over, um, you know, if you're just putting your weight on your feet, you know, in a couple species, so to speak, you're going to plunge right through um, and you're not going to make it across. Like but that. if you can spread your weight, you know, spread your impact over the ecosystem, over the the ocean through a diverse suite of species, you know, lay out and crawl on that um, layer, um, you know, our impact is a lot less. And um, and beyond that, you know, the argument too is that not all fish are created equal from a trophic level, from a you know, um, from a health level, from a uh, you know sustainability standpoint, that there are other you know that there are fish that are way more sustainable uh, that we should be eating than say the tunas and the salmons and the you know iconic um, predatory uh, you know uh, species out there that we really should be feeding or eating more of the the smaller fish you know and I think that's a big part of uh, Paul. Paul's uh, narrative and four fish and, and, and American catch and a lot of the work that he's doing again in, in fisheries. But, you know, again, the idea is that, um, there's fish out there in huge abundance, uh, like the anchovies, uh, the mackerel, the sardines, uh, that, 
you know, we're not eating that are the healthiest, they're the most abundant, they produce and proliferate like crazy, you know, more than any other fish in the ocean. Um, and the interesting, you know, statistic is that, you know, of those species, those ones I just mentioned, uh, most of those fish, you know, you know, the, the, by volume globally aren't being used for human consumption, that most of these small fish like anchovies, you know, mackerel, um, sardines, Manhattan, you know, like all these fish are being used for industrial purposes, whether it's the oils um, for lubricants or for fish feed um, in fish farms or animal feed uh, cat food. or cat food yeah. or um, omega pills that, you know, there's a tremendous abundance of resource out there that we aren't tapping as, as uh, humans that we should be eating, again, not just because... Um, it's more sustainable for the planet, but also because it's healthiest fish out there. And so um, I think we really need to think, you know, imagine a future um, where that's a stronger, uh, more important part of our diets, um, where we're recognizing that, um, you know, we're just, it's not a matter of not, there not being enough resource. It's, it's that we're not using these resources correctly. Right. So do you think that that is a branding issue more than anything, branding and education? Yeah. And it, cultural, you know, there are cultures that absolutely love those fish. You know, there's, you know, you go, you go to the Mediterranean, you go to Spain and you sit down to, you know, an incredible meal, you know, life, uh, lifelong meal and they're serving you a sardine and you love it like you've never you know had a better piece of seafood right. in your life yet somehow you come back to the states and you're like yeah, i'm not gonna eat sardines and you're like wait a second but you just had like you know amazing culinary experience with sardines in another culture why can't we here in this you know in this culture in the united states cultivate a stronger appreciation adopt that and adopt that right, right. i think that's part of it is just getting people you know um you know just you know, and this is the help of chefs. This is the help of just, um, and so it's part branding. It's part availability, you know, that these fish, um, aren't highly available on the market unless, you know, you're picking up in a can and how, you know, I love canned sardines. Don't get me wrong. Like, you know, throw a little mayo, some onions in there instead of a tuna fish sandwich, do a little, you know, sardine sandwich. Fantastic. Um, but that's not the type of culinary experience that people, you know, think about, you know, when you think about, you know, you know, beautiful piece of, you know, salmon on your plate or, Right. Or tuna, you know, seared tuna. You know, we can all, you know, probably get a lot of people drooling right now thinking about these things. But, you know, I think I want that same type of response to occur when you think about fresh anchovies, you know, that have been prepared um, and preserved and, you know, and the cilantro and and, uh, olive oil and lemon juice and put that on a nice piece of bread. And, you know, God, that's an amazing Right. right there. I remember last time we we spoke, you were telling me about this species, the Pacific Greninger. Oh, yeah. And that's like one that pulls on your heartstrings because <laughs> it's like a real tasty, flaky, white, uh, white fish, but has kind of typically been seen as this like kind of gross, you know, throwaway fish. Totally. Right. Yeah. There's this, con- you know, there's this concept of trash fish out there, which I think is you know, horrible, uh, term that no fish out there should ever be called trash. Um, we call it, you know, underloved or underappreciated, you know, recognizing <laughs> that, that all, all fish and Foster all the creatures fish. out there <laughs> yeah. have something beautiful they offer. Right? right. Um, and you know, with this, with this fish in particular, you know, it's a great story, um, because, you know, it's caught in bycatch with the black cod fishery predominantly. And, you know, these guys are setting out long lines on the bottom at crazy depths, you know, thousands of feet. Um, and, and they're catching predominantly black cod, but they're also catching this grenadier. And for the most part, this 
this fish didn't have a market. And uh, I learned about this fish uh, when, you know, I met some fishermen who were using it in their restaurants and serving as fish and chips. And I said, well, this is, this is great. Like it is an edible fish. People love it. And in fact, people are willing to pay for it. Let's think about ways in which we could um, expand the use of that fish. And at the time, I met my now wife, Jennifer Gerard, who was the nutrition director at the Monterey Peninsula Unified School District. And she was doing an amazing job at procuring local foods, you know, even grass-fed beef and local vegetables. She established salad bars in the school district. And she was trying really hard to find a local fish source. And she was knocking on doors and getting turned away. And just so happened that we met and we started talking. And obviously, um, our connections in food um, are, are strong, some of the strongest uh, aspects of our relationship. And, you know, I would say, you know, so at that time, you know, our, our brains are spinning and she's asking me if I could find a fish that can meet their crazy budget of $1.25 for the whole meal for a kid. You know, that's the fruit, that's the milk, that's, you know, every, um, it's the protein, it's the carbohydrates, and there's really strict rules in terms of what they can provide on the plate. And there's not a whole lot of room for, for fish. And so, um, from a budget standpoint, but you know, I, I, after learning about Grenadier, I realized that, Hey, this might be, this might be the species. This might be the fish that we can actually meet that, uh, budgetary constraint. And, uh, we piloted it in Monterey and sure enough, the kids, uh, bought more, uh, Grenadier fish tacos than the pizza or the chicken sandwiches, which we know are the number one items that kids love to eat. And so we knew right then and there that uh, we were onto something. And so that became, uh, the beta trade program that we both co-founded, which, you know, again, is, is looking at, uh, how do we build a stronger relationship, uh, to our oceans through the future generations to our children, um, in addition, in addition, uh, utilizing, uh, food waste, utilizing fish that was typically thrown overboard, um, and not generating any value for these fishermen. Now we can pay them for that fish. Now that fish comes to the dock. It provides jobs for the filleters, the people that are cutting the fish. It goes through the distribution system. It goes through some mainline distributors and ends up in school districts where they're preparing it, scratch cooking it, and then ultimately on a, on a kid's plate. And, you know, to, to think that a fish like Pacific Grenadier that had no story really, you know, that we cared about at this point could then, you know, move through our society, move through our, our commerce, move through our supply chains and create that kind of value was really exciting, you know, and, um, you know, we call it our sort of our triple win again, you know, we're, we're utilizing, a uh, a resource that was otherwise wasted. We're, we're, um, providing economic benefit to our fishermen and then we're feeding kids, um, a local fish. And in doing that also, we're creating opportunities for fishermen to go into the schools and talk about, fishing and talk about the ocean, talk about their livelihood and, you know, building that connection again. It's one thing if you sit down to a meal of fish tacos and you don't really know much about it. It's another thing if you have a fisherman who's come into your classroom and has talked about it and has shared that story. So now, you know, you know, maybe only 1%, 2% of these kids are putting those pieces together. We know that kids are, have a lot more things that they're thinking about other than the, the fish tacos that they're eating. But maybe a few of these kids start to pay a little more attention. Maybe, you know, when they get older, they reflect back on that moment and they think about, wow, that's actually was pretty cool that we had that chance to do that. Because everyone that I've talked to, this the, the, the common thread for fish consumption in school is fish sticks. And that's kind of where the story ends. And, and uh, for a kid who's gone to school and, you know, was prepared a local fish taco, 
um, there's a lot more story there that they can share and potential reflection to, you know, opportunity for them to become a commercial fisherman, opportunity to become a marine scientist, for them to potentially become a chef. You know, our hope is that, you know, that just that little introduction um, to that fish, to that story, maybe inspires a few kids to to do something for the ocean. I agree, man. So what would you recommend uh, someone do to take, you know, the first, first couple steps if they want to get more involved with, with what you're doing and want to learn more about uh, the fish in the Monterey Bay or, you know, yeah, let's just use the Monterey Bay as, as the example, you know, like how can, how can you actually get, how can you take this plunge without becoming overwhelmed? Yeah. I mean, um, Again, the CSFs like our business, Real Good Fish, or similar companies like us, uh, you know, I think are great uh, entry points from a culinary standpoint. You know, it's just it's it's one convenient way for people to to introduce these types of conversations that we're having right now um, to their dinner plate and and in their kitchen and and you know. Hopefully, invigorate some more creativity right. and, and fun. And, and do, you but, say, do you say that you, it's a subscription service that that's to your doorstep, or is it? Do you go pick it up somewhere? How's that? Yeah, work? you go pick it up at a, at a you know a uh, community location. So okay. for you and for you know this neighborhood here, it's you know Pleasure Point. It's you know at, at, um, Kevin Butler, who's one of our uh, fishermen and uh, chefs for Real Good Fish. You go to his house, and he has a cooler there, and you it's prepaid for. You go in there, you pull out your fish, and you take it home, and you prepare it. Um, so we're not going direct to people's doors. Uh, we are just trying to make it convenient by, you know, putting these strategic, these coolers strategically throughout neighborhoods and communities. And we have over 96 different pickup locations wow. um, so far. So we have a pretty good range and I think it's worth, you know, if you're interested in this, exploring sort of those locations. But again, you know, for us, um, you know, we like the idea of, you know, community it's sort of in how we identify ourselves you know community support fishery that's the community effort it's it's the idea that um you know we together as as individuals can come together in our own in our own terms and and uh you know get access to fish that otherwise wouldn't be available it's it's that's the only way it really works um and that's how we create value for our members and how we create value for um you know our fishermen right um you know, beyond, you know, the culinary aspect of it, I think, you know, from a tourism and just from a pure curiosity standpoint, if you're lucky enough to live on the coast, uh, take some time to walk along the harbors, you know, and, and really sort of pay attention to what you see out there, you know, like, you know, there's certain boats that don't look like the other boats and chances are it's a commercial boat. It's a little bit more haggard. It's a little bit more rough on the edges. It's got numbers printed on the side of it. Uh, it's probably got a crusty fisherman or fisherwoman, you know, uh, inside, you know, working on gear. And, uh, but you know, maybe walk down the docks and, and ask a few questions. You may not get a good response. You may get a good response. You never know. Um, but it's, you know, just a good way to just open our eyes to, you know, our working waterfronts and know that these men and women are out there working on the water, coming home and, um, bringing us tasty fish. Um, and so, you know, it's, I think that's a great way to do it. And, and, and understanding in that too, that these, these harbors, these waterfronts, these are, these are the gateways to these industries, you know, and, you know, if people aren't paying attention to it and people aren't appreciating them for what they are, um, there's gentrification happening in our harbors. People don't think about it, but, you know, our fishermen, our commercial fishermen, um, are being displaced by, um, you know, fancy yachts and, you know, really expensive boats. Um, you know, the numbers are staggering. If you go look at it year over year, you know, there's just less and less commercial fishermen in our harbors. And, if we're not paying attention to it, we're they're going to go away, mm. and that's I think 
to me, that would be the ultimate sign that we've failed. Mm. Um, and and then do you think so. what would replace them are just huge, like large scale uh, fishing industry, you know, that, that, that do uh, tuna and the, yeah. and the big four? Like, yeah, would, exactly. would it be just replaced by... Yeah, our fish consumption isn't going to stop. Right. It's going to be displaced and it's going to be distributed to, again, the... Um, the industrialization of our food system and, and it's absolutely happening in, in in seafood so you know 90 percent of the seafood we consume in this country is imported wow even here in the monterey area um you know it's staggering to think that if you go to you know any one of the restaurants chances are that fish isn't local chances are that you know it's going to be a farm fish chances are that it's been imported it's been part of a supply chain that's really long and circuitous with very little transparency, very opaque. Um, and probably if you knew where it was coming from, wouldn't be too thrilled about how it was produced. And I think this is where we have to take some responsibility and say, hey, look, like if I really value local sustainable seafood, I, I need to participate in that system. Because if I don't participate in that system... Um, the alternative is much worse. Well, not only for the sustainability of fish, you know, in other, there are a lot of other countries that don't have uh, marine protected areas. They don't have regulations. So the, a lot of these species will just be fished to extinction. Right. And we will be uh, directly responsible for that through our purchasing choices, not only for the fish, but also for the people. Dude, I had this uh, investigative journalist named Ian Urbina on my podcast. He's okay. a he's a journalist for the New York Times, and he's doing he's done a um, an in depth report on slavery at sea, right? In the fishing industry, oh, it's brutal. If you it read is into it. brutal. I, I mean, he tells these stories of going on to these fishing vessels, you know, off Thailand, where there are the, where migrant workers have been kept out there for literally years and not paid. And it's and it's going to you know they're they're catching fish that will be made into your cat food or you know and or end up on your plate and it's uh it, there's a movie being made about uh about his investigative reporting with Leonardo DiCaprio oh no right way. now yeah oh, I can't wait to see that but yeah check out the the outlaw ocean with Ian Urbina I was like on the edge of my seat hearing these fucking stories of him going on to these these sh these big motherships that are way out there off of Thailand and just really horrifying stories about the workers so to bolster your point about you know the the what can happen if we don't do it right it's really the the suffering of not only um these ecosystems but also humans as well yeah absolutely and i think that's where you know the industry and i think we as consumers um it's a lot it's 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 easier to relate to because um you know it's 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 visceral you know we we think about our family members we think about you know uh, what it means, um, what slavery means in a world today, and and um, what it's meant in our history, and um, it just it's crazy to think that that still occurs, and and so you know to a certain degree, I think it's you know I'm I'm glad that people are gravitating towards that story, and I'm glad that those stories are emerging because I do think. Um, it's gonna. Be, it has proven to be one of the ways in which people have been able to um, sympathize and fully understand, or maybe not fully, but really start to, to dig deep and understand that um, you know these the implications of 
of doing the job run or like you said, stem beyond, you know, healthy ecosystems, but stem into sort of healthy communities and people and, um, just human rights yeah. in general. Yeah. And, uh, it's really important for people to be paying the, attention to that. Absolutely. I mean, there was the, the, uh, the, what was the movie with Tom Hanks where he's, uh, he was the captain who gets taken as a prisoner oh, right. in Somalia. Right. I forget what the name of the movie is, but he's, he's taken in and, and, uh, there's this scene in it where, uh, Tom Hanks is like, why are you, why are you doing this? You know, why are you pirates out here? And they said, well, all of the international, uh, fishing companies have taken all of our fish. We, we have no other option, you know? Right. So you right. see these destroyed communities and then they turn to, um, really you know, yeah, destructive practices as a result, but God damn it, Alan level level. You are, uh, you're creating the alternative. <laughs> I love it. It's great that you're creating the alternatives. Well, it's got to, you know, you got to imagine a brighter future out there and that's, yeah. you know, that's the world I want to live in. Right. And if we imagine it, um, and we can make it come to fruition, you know, and I think that's, that's part of it too, is, is there's, I think we often feel very helpless and, you know, we, we read the news or we listen to the news on a podcast or, you know, we talk to our friends and family about all the things that are going wrong in the world. Um, it's really easy to get down. It's really easy to sort of feel like you can't do anything. And I think again, more than anything, um, beyond this business and beyond sort of, uh, our mission, you know, I think we need to be looking to entrepreneurship, we need to be looking to the future leaders of our world and gravitate and support those visions of a better future because that's the only way it's going to happen. You know, it's not going to happen by chance. It's not going to happen by um, not paying attention to it or not getting involved. It's going to happen because we've been participating, because we're uh, engaged, because, you know, someone shares a vision of a world that you want to live in. And, and again, that's, that's the beautiful thing about, you know, this day and age right now, um, whether it's social media or whether it's, again, entrepreneurship or it's just the new channels and technology, um, there are so many new ways for people to become active participants and to empower the communities that they live in. It's really exciting. I mean, it's really sort of amazing to imagine um, that there are people, um, you know, throughout, you know, the, our communities that at the click of a button or, you know, with some hard work can reach millions of people, um, you know, we weren't able to do that you know, yeah. decades, a few decades ago. So. so to end it on the click of a button, what's the <laughs> website called that people can go to and start subscribing to this amazing uh, business model? Realgoodfish.com. Realgoodfish.com. Keep it simple. Yeah. Love it, man. Thank you for yeah. the work that you're doing. Yeah. Thank you, Kyle, for creating the opportunity to get out there and tell these stories. It's important. You know, I think, yeah, back to that message. It's, you know, once, once we know the things are going on out there, we can, it's a lot easier for us to know where to go sweet man well i'm gonna go to realgoodfish.com right after this podcast thank you so much thank you kyle that's our show i'm gonna play you out the song called streams by connor spicer and i will link to his band page in the show notes if you're a musician and you want your music played you can email it to info at kyle.surf uh and if you want some mud water if you want some santa cruz medicinals if you want a box of goodies go to kyle.surf or if you want any of those products individually uh, go to mudwtr.com or scmedicinals.com and type in the code name Kyle10 for either. Uh, SC Medicinals gets you 10% off. And with Mudwater, if you want a subscription, it'll get you 10 bucks off that first subscription. You're welcome. And hope you all have a great day. Uh, go support local fisheries. Go get in the water and enjoy your short time here on Earth. 
Thanks so much for listening. See you next week.